This is the After Hours Director Spotlight, presented by Amro Music. It's the podcast where we chat with music educators to celebrate the joy of teaching music and learn about strategies for success. In this episode, Nick Averwater talks with Benjamin Easley, director of bands at Nolansville High School in Nolansville, Tennessee, a town of around 16,000 located a half hour south of Nashville. Benjamin comes from a family of music educators, so we'll learn more about his early influences and also learn more about Nolansville's non-competitive marching band model and how it compares with competitive bands in a part of the country where marching band is such an important part of many communities. Our conversation was recorded July 1st, 2022. It's broken up into two episodes, and this is part one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to After Hours Conversations for Music Educators. I'm excited to sit down today and do a director spotlight with Mr. Benjamin Easley, director of bands at Nolansville High School. Benjamin, it's good to see you today. You too, Nick. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you on. This is a conversation that we've tried to get on the calendar for some time, but you keep such a busy schedule. And we're going to unpack why you do so many things well over there at Nolansville High School. Now, for our listeners that may not be from Middle Tennessee or may not know you, first, can you just introduce yourself, perhaps take us through your musical journey, who are the educators that influenced you along the way, and then I'd also love to set the stage with where your program is today. Tell us about your program, what you do, and then we'll start pulling at some of the threads uh, of our conversation. Yeah, it sounds great. I was born and raised in Northwest Tennessee in Union City. Uh, We usually tell people it's about 10 minutes from UTM, and if they don't know that, two hours north of Memphis. Uh, Small town, nothing really around it. Uh, When I was in middle school, it was a big flex if you wore Abercrombie, because not only could you afford it, but you had to do the four-hour round trip to Wolf Chase Galleria. So uh, I was there for 18 years, and I grew up in a musical family. Uh, My mom was on staff at UT Martin in the music department as a collaborative pianist, and uh, my dad was my high school band director and middle school band director for that matter. And uh, it was just kind of all we knew growing up. Uh, Like I said, I'm in my going into my 11th year of teaching, and in many ways, having been around this my whole life, it feels like I've just always been a part of it and doing it. Um, And so I studied trombone pretty extensively in high school. Uh, I would drive to the late Ray Conklin studio at Murray State every Wednesday and take lessons. He was so kind to teach me for free if I would make the round trip drive. And so trombone specifically became a big part of my life, uh, especially in high school. And uh, did the Allstate thing every year and then had really a kind of pivotal moment at Interlochen Arts Center at the summer camp. Um, I'll never forget, I had the opportunity to, to play Mahler 5 with Jerry Schwartz conducting and growing up in Northwest Tennessee, I mean, that was candidly one of my only orchestral experiences, and it just, it ignited something in me, um, just that um, opportunity to get to collaborate on stage with that uh, high level of musicianship, and uh, my orchestra colleagues was something that I didn't necessarily set out to pursue, but I made the decision that I did want to uh, pursue a performance degree, and so I did the audition circuit, and then uh Got out of Union City, loved growing up there. It was great, was ready to go, and uh, landed in Dallas, Texas at Southern Methodist University, um, where I would later meet my wife. And so started Tremone Performance, uh, developed performance anxiety, which I always kind of thought was like, ah, that's not a real thing. And then (laughs) once I had my first day, so I was like, wow, this is very much a real thing. And yeah, just it did not go well for me at first. Um, I think I got 
so caught up in playing that I missed what was right in front of me in terms of relationships. And just even then the theme of balance, um, I had grown up sort of in a, a person of faith background. And when I got to college, just kind of lost all that at first. So that was kind of a part of my story too. And it was really difficult. This is sort of a blanket statement, but my wife and I both talk about this, that at the highest level of artistry and performing arts, in general, most of the people that we respected for their art, we didn't necessarily respect as, as humans or as people. And so that was something just for us that kind of pulled us away from the performance piece full time. Uh, so I kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and thought I'll get a political science degree and go to law school. And uh, everyone in my life that had mentored me loved me through that, quietly listened to what I had to say and uh, just kind of shook their heads. And then eventually I kind of came to my senses, took the LSAT, was ready to go. And in January went like, what am I doing? So uh, Sarah and I got engaged pretty young. We were married right out of undergrad. And then I went straight into graduate school for conducting, instrumental conducting, and then uh, music education. And I didn't even have an ed degree. So SMU actually in their their bylaws doesn't even take ed majors for master's degrees without an ed undergrad. But uh, fortunately, was friends with the registrar, and they worked me in. And so I was able to stay at my alma mater for graduate school and ended up getting degrees in uh, music theory, pedagogy, instrumental conducting, and a master's degree in music education. Uh, and so that was full-time for me, and I would go out and look at other band programs in the area. I, I actually never... To kind of go full circle here, everybody always assumes that, oh, you wanted to be a band director your whole life because of your dad, right? And I was like, actually, no, I actually didn't actually did not want to do it. Um, I wanted to play. And so um, for me, it was funny when I kind of had that epiphany, that full circle moment of, wow, I kind of love teaching. It was two parts. One, it was going out and seeing incredible teachers. Uh, that sounds cliche, but Texas, as an outsider, I always thought Texas was, oh, they've got money, they've got resources, and they do. Uh, but just some of the most incredible teaching I'd ever observed and experienced. And so um, developed my pedagogy through graduate school and found myself in a hotbed of programs. Um, student taught at Berkner High School and Frank Troika was still director of bands there. And then fortunately, a position actually opened up that I was able to go right into it and had a Midwest program in my backyard. Um, it was incredible. It was a Title I school. Uh, with uh, large minority representation, which was another thing that really opened my eyes early in my career to see that kids are kids and we can teach them all. And uh, again, here you have this this Midwest UIL state finalist band program that uh, the socioeconomic status of the average student and family was m much different than where I am now here in Williamson County. And so um, just had an incredible opportunity to teach there and learn. My wife often calls Texas my boot camp years because I was pulling candidly 80, 90 hour weeks, even in the spring. And it was something that for me starting at a 6A, 5A at the time was a lot. Um, I learned a great deal, but I did kind of spin out personally. It was just a uh, band became the main thing and the only thing. And once my wife and I were ready to start our family, we just decided that we couldn't keep that pace up. And so we moved to the Nashville area because my family was back in Tennessee and hers was in central Florida. So we picked Tennessee. And from there, um, taught at John Overton High School briefly, and then Williamson County had a new school opening in Nolansville, uh, which used to be all farmland like most of Middle Tennessee before it was developed. And so I was able to open that program in fall of 2016. Uh, we had two grade levels and a whopping 23 students in band by the time the first year was done. And so that's what, that's what brought me kind of around to Nolansville. 
and uh, just, you know, always wanted the opportunity to start my own program, thought it'd be really cool. I definitely have like many band directors an entrepreneurial spirit and I'm a control freak, frankly. So the opportunity to, to micromanage and decide everything from my other hobbies of graphic design and what the aesthetic is going to be like to the music and arranging and writing and the vision and, and casting all that for my students was something that was really important to me and my family. So we moved out here to Nolensville. Before, almost before everybody else did. And uh, we've been here six years now, just finished year six. Yeah, that's fabulous. Well, th- this is a little off topic, but I, I want to back up and reflect a little bit on your time at Texas because I think you 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 hinted at something really interesting. And, and sometimes I think there is um, a natural tendency to connect um, success and music quality with affluency. And you mentioned your time at Title I, at the Title I school, where that certainly was not the case. And so I would love to just hear you unpack out loud some of the other underlying factors that you felt like contributed to the successes of those programs and how they inspired you in your teaching today. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. I get really passionate about it. And like I said, teaching now in a very affluent community, which has its benefits, it's something that I have lost touch with a bit, frankly. Um, My first experience of that was seeing Tom Shine, Brian Merrill, and later Jeff King at Duncanville High School. Uh, And and again, at the time, I think they were 80, 90% free and reduced lunch. And the one ensemble, just remarkable. And really, again, I would just say it's the old adage, there's no substitute for good teaching and leadership. Um, the pedagogy was so sound. I would see these students taken from sixth grade and taught and developed to make beautiful fundamental sounds with, uh, just perfect embouchures, music literacy, even at the elementary level by just some of the most incredible elementary music teachers I've ever observed. I was in the the Lake Highlands cluster once and I saw Emily do an elementary music class and I had to go observe it. And I was like, oh, this is going to suck. I don't want to do this. And I got out there and just, she had the kids reading and solfeging and singing. And it was like, when these guys get to sixth grade band, they're going to be monsters. They can already read. And so really it was just, it was, it was the focus on PED and on teaching music effectively uh, with really good information and believing that every student could do it again that sounds so cliche but one of my mentors Lynn Jackson always said like kids are kids and we can teach them all and everything that's going on in your classroom whether good or bad you're somehow giving permission for it and so it really put it back on the educator to to be good at our craft Um, I think I grew up to sometimes in an environment where it was modeled for me that you know you don't have to know everything just get other people to do it and while I think there's good synergy to that when I taught in Texas when you had your beginner brass class, you were it. You were the one responsible for coming prepared daily with the good information and helping the kids be successful. And uh, procedures were important, like they are around here too, or with any quality band program. You know, we lived and died by them, but it was something that the students bought into. And uh, it really did. It tore down a lot of walls and I think preconceptions that I had, even growing up in a rural, mostly white, relatively affluent community for 18 years, seeing these kids. Uh, dig deep and show grit and perseverance and and tenacity at unprecedented levels in my experience was just inspiring and uh, so I do I hold that to this day you know I never count a group out in either direction because of the setup so to speak yeah 
I think that's just a great reflection, great lesson learned. And you can just hear the passion in your voice, how much this still today influences your teaching style and the way you conduct and, and the passion that you pour back into your students. So before we start talking a little bit about the, the Nolansville program specifically, you, you mentioned that you opened the program uh, six or eight years ago now, and um, it, it's in a uh, an area that's uh, just like everything in Middle Tennessee is just developing as the town continues to spread out. Nolansville is, what, 40, 45 minutes from downtown, somewhere in that Actually, yeah, not even. We're like less than 30 now. Well, depending on traffic, about 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So it's just as, as Nashville has continued to spread out, one of these communities that is just growing very rapidly. Um, tell us about the program today and just in terms of the growth that you've seen and, and perhaps some of the things that you really emphasize on, just so we can kind of set that ground level up for our listeners and then we can start pulling at some specific things uh, within your program. Yeah, sure. So Nolansville was this weird animal to begin with. Like I said, 23 students, uh, tiny school to start. Lots of energy, uh, lots of zeal, not a lot of direction initially. Everybody was just so excited to have a baseball team and like see what the band might do and what it could be. And uh, really, like I said, I don't think any of us knew what we were doing. Uh, Dr. Bill Harlan, who's at Brentwood Middle now, was our first principal uh, for the first five years of the school and did just a remarkable job leading effectively. I've always said my experience of administration, candidly, has always been just hope they leave you alone and stay out of the way. But he really cast a vision for the whole school, and it was something that we could all really get behind and was so supportive in our early years. So the band started with 23, and it was just me. And uh, my sister, Rebecca, at the time started the, the feeder school, Mill Creek, which was a shared campus. So I would go over there, and we would team teach beginners together and sort of bring the Texas model and PED that I had learned to our cluster from the sixth grade level. And uh, that first year, we didn't even have a season. It was junior varsity football, and we never touched on a field at halftime. We played in the stands. And because I had so few kids, I was like, wow, we are not going to sound big. And Williamson County's used to some bigger bands. What are we going to do? And I had been at an arena show recently where I had seen, you know, major artists, sold out crowd with live horns. But then I noticed like many do nowadays, they were tracking. And I thought, okay, to make this song come alive like it's on the album, they're playing to a backing track that's acceptable. It's industry standard now for live events. So I thought, well, what if we do that? I mean, I've seen Western Carolina do it on the field to start their shows. Haven't seen anybody do it in the stands. So I just started remixing tracks and logic and creating my own beats, if you will. And we put the speakers in the stands and played along to it. And it was so cool to see what happened. Uh, the band did sound the band did sound bigger, you know, which was a bit of smoke and mirrors initially. But the student section came alive, and the crowd came alive, and it got so cool because night after night and week after week, if something just dropped the week before, we could play it in the stands. And it was something that kind of became the Nolansville way. It was really unique. And I had every intent of going competitive the entire time. It was like, we just can't afford it right now. This is not something we have the numbers for to sustain and be successful. So I was kind of biding my time when all of a sudden I realized, like, wait a minute, we're onto something here. If we go competitive, we can't do this style of show or music. But if we focus our energies on Friday nights, we can continue to facilitate this electric experience for our crowd and our community. And my kids loved it. Uh, I did have some kids that joined from a neighboring school that was competitive, so they had a brief experience with that and enjoyed it. But it was one of those things where I said, you know, if you guys will trust me as we cast this, cast this vision for the program, I think this could be something unique. And so at Nolansville, from there, we put it on the field. And to this day, we track all of our shows, and we're somewhere in between, like I said, a 
a college band and a BOA band. We still have contemporary elements to our shows, but everything we do are exclusively pop sources. And every fall we draw from all decades and all inspirations and influences. And it's kind of become our thing. You know, initially we were the speaker band and maybe got a little made fun of by some of our, you know, colleagues and peers. But now we're 170 strong and, you know, we've got dozens of kids in mid-state honor band and doing the all-state thing and going on to be music majors now uh and it's it's been really cool to see it just grow and develop into something pretty unique yeah and that's so interesting i have never um i've never been to one of your football games or, or seen your band perform but i have heard so many compliments just about the words that you use man they're just energetic and they're fun and they're electric and you can just tell the kids are having fun as you were going down that path, was there a part of you that um, was kind of wrestling with this inner dialogue between what you came from at Union City, which, of course, is a high-caliber, competitive, award-winning, traditional marching band in the southeastern sense, in this vision of you're thinking, there's something here, and I want to keep unpacking it, but it's at the expense of kind of my past. Was there an inner dialogue there? Yeah, for sure. Um yeah, I mean, I felt rebellious. I always joke that, and forgive me, but, you know, being a band director's kid is kind of like being a pastor's kid a little bit, where, you know, you, you get jaded because you see all the sausages made, and, you know, you're always around it, and it's one of those things where, all right, once I have my own one day, I'm going to go this way. And so there was a little bit of that rebel in me that thought, you know, Middle Tennessee, like I said, has a huge history of competitive marching band, which I respect and revere, uh, and I still appreciate the traditional model. It was, like I said, it was... it. It was necessity being the mother of invention. Originally, we didn't have funding for props. We didn't have funding for all of our uniforms. We couldn't we couldn't play by those rules. So I just said, let's flip the script. Let's define success in our own way. And I think it that would be something that I would impart to other band directors in their communities is to know your community. And Nolansville's, you know, again, we're in the South. We're in Williamson County. It's a big athletics community. I mean, they support the football program like no other and the energy is palpable. It's electric. So rather than try to compete with that on a Friday night, uh, we decided to embrace it. And like I said, it became uniquely what we do. And, and since that time, because we pursued that model, you know, my kids have gotten to perform live on stage at the Dove Awards. You know, we had a spot on ABC World News Tonight with David Muir. Uh, there's, we played at the Titans game. There's all these other opportunities as extrinsic motivators that my students have the time and space for because we don't choose to pursue the competitive model. Yeah. So I have to imagine that other educators have approached you about this, right? Because they, they see the success and the energy and in the back of their minds, they're having that same inner dialogue that you're having. So, so you've mentioned some of the pros here. What are some of the cons that people come to you with? And they say, okay, Benjamin, you do non-competitive marching band, but what about this? What are some of the most frequent objections or cons that people come back and and how do you respond to those yeah so very familiar with these the number one question that i field is how do you keep the students motivated without competition and which is valid to that question i typically respond that uh kids only know what they know and they don't know what they don't know and for my students they feel successful as we've defined success And so what that looks like is on a Friday night, if you grabbed the Nolansville band kid right now and interviewed them, 9 through 12 concert band to win ensemble, and said, what's one of your favorite parts of the fall that keeps you going? It would actually not be a home game. It would be an away game because we travel, and they love that seven-minute progression of watching an away crowd who's 
probably up or down on the scoreboard and doesn't care about the band from the other school go from what is this like you see the looks on their faces as i'm mixing live it's like oh, what is this thing and seven minutes later they're all up screaming dancing on their feet and my students get to perform frankly for more electric vibrant crowds than I did growing up as a competitive marching band student. Now, I'm not here to argue that in Lucas Oil that doesn't exist. It's just for us and for my kids and where they are, they feel like rock stars, and they are. They get that opportunity to engage the average listener and audience member on their interests musically. And that's something else that I felt really convicted about early in my career is there's nothing wrong with a competitive model, but if I'm going to be candid as a band director and a designer and arranger, we're often catering to the adjudicators. And it's one of those things where we're targeting most of our energies toward what does this elite group of people think about our program? And that's not to say that we shouldn't have standards. We absolutely do. In fact, it's one of those things where, you know, as my wife always says, you know, you guys would just be the speaker band if you didn't take all your groups to concert festival and, you know, make superiors in the spring or you didn't have kids in mid-state. And we do focus on the whole musician. That's our big thing. But I think it's one of those things where, again, when you look at the average fall, who, who are we catering to here? And for us, we, we want to reach the masses with music. It's one of those things that right now, you know, if I go to the rec center and work out, everybody's got their AirPods in and there's probably everything from George Jones to snarky puppy, but everybody's engaging music in some way. So to get in on that and not have to fight football, so to speak, but to join them and enhance the Friday night experience, my kids are motivated. I mean, they love it. They, if you came to an old rehearsal it looks like a Dobbins Minute rehearsal. If you came to a Friday night, my kids in warm-up circle feel like they're getting ready to walk into the dome. I mean, that is how they engage it, and it's how they define success. And they just they feel cool as a result. You know, they know it's something that they do uniquely, that they can be proud of, that they've helped to kind of pioneer in this area. So that's the first one. There are many more. I don't know how many you want me to go into, but you know, yeah, keep, 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 keep going. It, Give us your keep, top keep three. It, keeping the kid, keeping the kids motivated. To which, again, I would say, I think we have to be careful with extrinsics too. For me, the big thing I was taught in Texas is music for music's sake. You know, we often try to say that, like, well, band teaches teamwork and responsibility, and it'll mature your character. And it's like, well, so does football. I mean, it does. It does all those things. So, as a band director, what is what do we have to offer that the other things don't? And that's music. That is the only thing we have to offer that the others don't. And so if we can engage students in that way, they'll always come back for more. If they love how they sound on their instrument, they'll upgrade their instrument with AMRO music. You know, it's one of those things and they'll play it until they're in the grave and they'll share it with their kids and their kids' kids. And it's one of those things that, you know, we, we focus on the music above all else and we like to engage it in, in all levels and across all genres. You'll hear us on a Friday night play Katy Perry and then we'll be playing David Maslenka in the spring. You know, and it's one of those things that we try to hit all the genres and keep them engaged. Uh, the other thing that I get oftentimes is similar to that. It's how do you keep your community happy? How do you keep your principal happy? Uh, how do you compare to the other schools that you're obviously compared to because that's natural with competition? And again, we just go back to come see, like come and see, come on a Friday night, see the Nolensville band. You will see why. In fact, I'll just I'll call him out because he was such a great friend and leader. Bill Harlan, my principal, asked me in the second or third year, Hey, do you, do you think you guys will ever go competitive? And I said, frankly, man, not if you want what you see on Friday night. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. Got it. Yeah. Keep doing that. And so it's just one of those things that, like I said, to me, it's both and, and I say it all the time. I mentioned him earlier, you know, if Leif Cook told the Dobbins Bennett band, Hey, we're done competing. You know, the town of Kingsport would probably be upset with that 
understandably because they built a dynasty there and have an incredible legacy of pursuing that model. And that works so well for their community. In fact, they actually do a similar show like we do on Friday nights because they're so effective and resourced and good at what they do. They do both types. And so I think you can do just competitive. You could do just non-competitive. You could do both, but you've got to be in touch with your community and what they're really wanting. And once you can satisfy that, your constituents are happy and everybody's going to invest in your program. I mean, we're to the point now where financially we have such support we're actually engaging our first composers to do commissions this year you know it's something that's always been a dream of ours to hire some of our favorite composers to write pieces for our kids and we're finally there already in year seven as we approach this fall because we've chosen to value that for our kids and community differently than some others might define it for theirs yeah and and i want to back up because you you made a statement that nobody on this show has ever made but there, there, I think there's a ton of truth in it, in that the the writing and the show and the production is everything is is not necessarily being geared towards the community or the student is being geared towards a group of elite judges, and that that's a pretty powerful statement there uh, that that you've made. But there might be some truth in that. I I mean, you know my pops, and you you know again, I mean, you mentioned one time he was as tactful as a two by four. Unfortunately, I kind of follow suit, but it's just one of those things where. And, and here's the thing, to not be a hypocrite, I, I am blessed to judge off all. I have, you know, four or five competitions that annually I'll be on the panel to adjudicate here regionally. And I love it. I love getting to see those kids go out and put on their shows and do their things. And you know, the thing I noticed, Nick, is like, whether I'm in, you know, Mississippi or rural West Tennessee judging a show, every kid is bought in. They're hooked to what they're doing. You see it on their faces. They are sweating. If that director said, hey, go stand on your head before warm up and then run three laps around this field and then we're going to finals, they'd do it without asking because band kids are the best, man. They're loyal to the end. But when I sit up in that box and I watch what some of them are being asked to do, some of them, it does hurt my heart sometimes. And I think, man, this kid is enjoying their band experience. I wonder how much more they and these parents in front of me with these shirts on would be connected if it was something they feel like they could really understand and buy into. I mean, John easily said on this podcast that even Union City's heyday, his band parents would come off the field and go, hey, was, was that good? We don't know. And it's like, you know, I grew up seeing that. And even I thought at the time as a kid, like, man, it's kind of weird that the people pumping money and resources and support into this can't really articulate, you know, it's kind of like voting for the candidate and you ask about their policies and you don't know what they're about. And so it just, yeah, it's something that convicted me for my flock and how we define success. And I went, you know, what's always going to win is football and pop music. And I'm not going to fight that. I'm going to join the dance, you know, and we're going to, we're going to exploit that to our advantage and as a result, we just we have a vibrant thing going. Our kids love band. They love playing their horns. I mean, we only rehearse two hours a week in the fall. So you would think, okay, cool. The kids just don't play any other time. No, they're holding their own sectionals on Tuesdays. They're doing jazz band after school. They're in lessons. They're auditioning for Mid-State. They're excited to do that. And it's not that these things don't exist in other programs. I do just think in my evaluation of some other programs, the bandwidth is so taken up by competitive marching band that certain programs are not resourced to be able to do all of it well. And I just hate to see that for kids. Yeah. How much, because I know we have a listener or two out there, hopefully listening to this episode and they're thinking, yeah, Benjamin, this is all great, but but certainly there are things that you personally bring to the table outside of your pedagogy and your conducting to be able to do all these backtracks, right? Like, I mean, how much are you actually contributing with, with skills outside of your abilities as a music educator to be able to put this style of show on? 
Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I, I'm candidly, I'm contributing a lot. I mean, I, it, my fingerprints are all over it. Uh, but to the extent that that question may suggest that, you know, well, we couldn't do that. Absolutely. You could. I mean, there's resources out there. There are people like myself out there who write and design and keep a pulse on what's current and hip, if you will. And so, you know, yes, I'm involved in it, but what I love about our model too, is it's so easy to plug and play. And what I mean by that is like, if I were to go back to a rural West Tennessee community and do this, there are some where our shows would almost exclusively be country artists and sources that are CMA artists, right? Because that's what would really hit there and it would touch those kids. If I were to go back to certain schools in Texas and urban DISD, literally all I would do is like, well, you can't really do Memphis horrorcore, but like I would kick it way back to, right? Like all, all the early trap stuff. Uh, and so what I love about this too is there's not a one size fits all. Even the clients I write and design for, these shows look way different. And I always tell them, look, don't do what we've done. What does your community want to hear? What are your kids going to get really excited about playing and interpreting on a Friday night? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm in it deep, but I love that it can be catered and customized, much like a competitive design could be for a program. Yeah. Do you um, do you do a summer band camp? We do. Yep, we do. Uh, end of July, uh, five or six days, depending on the year. Pretty standard. We go eight to five. We don't go into the evenings just because I want the kids to have a break. Uh, but band camp is pretty standard, like you'd see anywhere else. We do keep a pretty reduced staff compared to our competitive colleagues, just because we 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 really lean heavily on our student leadership team to take a lot of the teaching responsibilities on themselves. And that's something else I'm passionate about is developing those student leaders to really have that ownership and uh, basically like operate like staff members. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the, the, the stand tunes that you do, you know, being this quote unquote speaker band. Um, do y'all do a, a halftime show? Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. And that's, and that's, the stands sort of evolved onto the field. It was a natural okay. progression for us. And so uh, they're thematic in nature. That's something else that I've tried to keep from competitive marching band. Uh, I mean, if you can get a show shirt, like who doesn't love a show shirt, right? I mean, that's the thing. You got to have that graphic. You got to have that aesthetic going. And so, yeah, man, we do. We do. We have props on the field. Uh, my kids love props. I mean, seriously, we've, we've, we've evolved to props and they are so excited to push props on the field. And, you know, unlike a competitive group that maybe those would have more function uh, then form for us. They're just out there and they look cool and the kids love them. And so we do, we borrow elements from that too, so that it does feel contemporary and fresh enough that when they go play like at the Williamson County exhibition, where all nine high school bands are present, they feel valid next to a Franklin who does really well with the competitive style. Okay. So really the things that, and, and I assume that, that your show remains static throughout the season, um, but it sounds like what really changes and is the variable here in all of this are the, the stand tunes that you're kind of introducing here is, is perhaps new music is introduced. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And the show itself, I mean, because again, we can kind of break the rules. We like to add in effects and we layer them in the same way that, you know, in, in a much reduced version of how perhaps a drum corps or a, a BOA group would, you know, modify the drill near the end of the season or put that little surprise element in in late October. We do sort of have our bag of tricks that each Friday night, especially at a home game, will roll out something a little new to enhance the show. So maybe you didn't see the smoke geysers the first time or then here comes the flyover or whatever the thing is that, again, we're borrowing from competitive marching band. And the other cool thing for us has been for our kids is every year we do a fall show, a lot of those songs 
become Stan's tunes the next season. So we don't use flip folders. We memorize our music. So now my students play over 50 sources at a game because they've got this catalog, this library of pop sources that they've learned. And then the incoming kids go, oh, we get to play. That's so awesome. We get to play Girl on Fire. Like I didn't get to play that last year in the show, but now we're going to play it at the games. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of updating your repertoire as people graduate out. You're bringing new people in. and Okay. Yep. That's awesome. Um, just for people that, again, are just, they're having this inner dialogue of themselves past couple of years of obviously COVID tucked in there. What have been some of the themes in the shows that y'all have done previously? Uh, yeah, well, that's proprietary, Nick. I can't tell you that previously. Can we go, can we look backwards? I I know I'm messing with you. Okay. So yeah, so we've done, uh, this past fall, we did, um, a show called ignite. So everything was, was fire and flame and heat based. Um, Dobbins Bennett is slated to do that one this fall too. So you can check them out. And then before that, we did uh, intergalactic and did sort of a space theme. So again, as you as you hear these things, these don't sound unlike right. marching band contemporary titles, except that where as when I you know when I design for competitive groups nowadays, it's it's still somewhat in vogue to work in the pop source with the classical arrangement and sort of mix the two as a juxtaposition. We just do just the pop stuff. So uh, yeah, so typically there's a theme. Uh, go ahead and tell you yeah this fall we're doing untamed. So everything is fierce and jungle and animalistic and wild and crazy. Yeah. Where do you see this going? And not just specifically at Nolansville, but collectively, because, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of conversation right now about the role of technology in marching band, and, and we see kind of core-style shows leading the way in DCI with some of the things that they're doing, and we have some more traditionalists that say, you know, I, I prefer to keep the technology out. But I suspect as more young people come in, that that needle is going to perhaps waver the other direction where it becomes more acceptable. We have more conversation about work-life balance and, and educator burnout, and, and you and I are going to talk about how you structure that. But, I mean, do you see this non-competitive format that you're kind of on the cutting edge of becoming more common across um, you know, schools and other programs? I certainly hope so, and and I do. I think it's on the horizon. Um, again, I mentioned freelancing. I mean, even just anecdotally, I used to, you know, just design for my kids and mostly did competitive groups. And now there are six or seven clients of my own in this area that have chosen to pursue the Nolansville model specifically. And even beyond that, the ones that I don't help, there are other groups in the area that do it to where, I mean, I would venture to say it used to be you know, maybe like one or two programs in the middle of Tennessee area pursued this. And now there are a dozen at least. Yeah. And so you can see it gaining traction and, and to my friends and colleagues who always say, well, man, we've been competitive and I would like to do this, but I just don't know how to rip that bandaid or make the transition with my parents and my kids. I always tell them if you can just get over the hump and try it and get to a Friday night, once they see your kids under the lights on Friday night with this style of show, there's no going back. You know, it's one of those things that you just, you just got to trust the process and try it out, which is a big ask. I realize, I mean, that can be, it can be tough, especially with programs that are traditional and have had, had that tradition of excellence. But I do, man, I think it's, I think it's going to be an alternative and I don't want the theme of this podcast to sound like I'm against competitive marching band. That's not true. I just, I think this is an opportunity as an alternative, as Al, as Albert Wynn would call it, my alternative marching band alliance. 
uh, this is an opportunity to to pursue something different for your community and your kids if you feel like that's appropriate. Well, and, and I haven't, and, and I won't speak for all of our listeners, I haven't taken that impression at all because you can feel your passion and your energy, and there's no doubt that your, your students are getting that high-quality music education and it's pedagogy. And anybody who's seen what you all are doing at the Mill Creek and at Nolansville High School, um, there's no question that y'all have some spectacular things going on. So I haven't read, I haven't read that uh, at all, but but it's just an interesting topic because there's this transition going on, and, and you kind of seem to be one of the front people in that. And I do have to imagine, too, I think one of the, the greatest compliments that an educator could receive is when one of their students go on to become educators themselves, right? The, the influence continues to the next generation. And I have to imagine that you'll have students that go on and get degrees in music education, and they'll probably teach what they know and what they experienced, which is kind of this yeah. Nolansville format. And we could continue continue to see that grow as more educators teach it, go on to become educators, and the cycle continues. Yeah, and I and I you're exactly right. And I encourage my students, you know, to to hold that tension of, you know, be appropriately prideful, love what you do and represent it. And also, you know, respectful of others and what they do. And like I said, I think, I really do think we do that well. And I'm proud of my kids for that. Again, when we go to like a Williamson County honor band and an Oldsville kid is sitting next to a Franklin kid, there's such mutual respect there. I mean, we can both go nuts for each other because we're excellent in what we do just defined differently with different models. That's Benjamin Easley, director of bands at Nolansville High School in Nolansville, Tennessee, talking with Nick Averwater. We'll hear the second part of this conversation on the next episode of the After Hours Director Spotlight, which is presented by Amro Music, a family-owned company since 1921. At Amro, we work with over 600 schools in eight states to bring the joy of music to thousands of young musicians, and these partnerships make production of the After Hours podcast possible. Our Director Services Department is ready to work with your school, too. Just email alan at amromusic.com or seth at amromusic.com. The After Hours podcast is produced by Nick Averwater, Emily McGee, and Joel Hurd in Memphis, Tennessee. And you can hear many more conversations with music educators at amromusic.com slash afterhours. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode, here are two easy and fast ways you can support the After Hours show. First, your five-star review means a lot as it helps to boost us in the podcast rankings so that other music educators, just like you, can find us. Second, if you thought of someone that would enjoy this week's content and episode, hey, please share it with them so that they too can be a part of the After Hours community. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.